This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. If you are going to be in Hamilton, especially in the downtown area, maybe closer to Tim Hortons Field on the weekend, uh, you'll probably notice something is going on, something big is going on, uh, because it is. It's going to be a huge event, the biggest concert, I think, in this city, probably since Keith Urban was here. Uh, 21 right now, 1,000 people, maybe more than that, will be downtown at Tim Hortons Field for the Arkells on Saturday night with their The Rally concert. Uh, joining me now, Max Kerman, frontman, lead singer of the Arkells. How are you today? I'm good. Uh, you know, hometown shows uh, require the most amount of sort of logistical planning just from, you know, friends that are looking for tickets and what you're going to do before and after the show and you know, we've tried to curate the day uh, to have taken on a few extra tasks, but it, it's all fun. It's all labor of love. Just before we get into all this, you have to clear up one thing, first of all, because there is an ongoing dispute, debate, whatever it is in this city. Nobody can seem to agree. Is the name of your band The Arkells or Arkells? Uh, on paper, it just is Arkells. So if you were to write it on a ad mat or on a you know, a sign, we, we, we'll lose the the, but if you're just speaking English in a sentence, uh, the, I'm going to see the Arkells tonight, that is totally fine. That's okay, you're not going to cut someone off for using the the, you know, the article is not going to lose friends for you. Yeah, no, it's, it's, and, and ultimately we don't really care, it's, it's fine, we don't, we don't be consulted one way or another. Regardless of what people want to call the band, Gray Rockingham, who writes for The Spectator, had a piece in the paper uh, today, I think it was, and he mm-hmm. points out that right now, it's his opinion, and I think he's probably on with this, that you guys are arguably the most popular rock band in the country. That, that's kind of a huge thing, i got to believe, for guys who started out, what, 10 years ago in a house near McMaster? That's a big deal. Yeah, well, it's nice of him to say, and it's nice to be kind of considered in that company. It's funny, though, it's like we've never had a moment in our band career where we were sort of propelled like where we skipped eight different steps or anything like that. It's all been like very, very gradual brick by brick. And, and that's mostly us just putting our head down and work working. <laughs> so uh, we know that like, you know, every band's career has, you know, peaks and valleys, but we try not to pay any attention to anything uh, else, but the work of the day. And then all you can do is what you can do over the course of the day. And you hope all that stuff adds up. So when so you're, I know, I know that's like a sports guy, answer, <laughs> but it's really true. It's just like all you can kind of do is just control, uh, like, because there's so many variables in this business that are completely out of your hands. You know, whether a band or a song connects with the culture uh, has a lot to do with time and place. Because there's so many incredible songs that have been written over the years, uh, but the only ones that sort of kind of uh, get to the top are the ones that sort of just have the alchemy of time and place and song. Uh, so for us, it's like we just try to do the best we can with, with what we can do and uh, yeah, see what happens. But, it's, but you know, overall, it's been kind of generally heading in the right direction uh, lately. Well, listen, we encourage sports guy answers. As a sports guy here, we encourage the sports guy answers. We like the sports guy answers. But when, when you're doing that, when you're working away and when you put all the time in and then you lift up your head for a moment, does it blow you away when you suddenly see that there's 21,000 people who want to come and see you play? Yeah, no, it's always like that. It's like we spend a lot of time just on the details of everything we do, whether it's uh, like a, the song itself when we're in the studio, whether it's thinking about the live show and, and rehearsing like bits that, that we want to perform, or it's a poster, or you know, it's an album campaign. Like all those things 
just are the result of like lots of conversations and just kind of creative ideas being thrown back and forth within the band and, uh, and our management. But um, so, yeah, you're right. When we hit the stage and there's a bunch of people there. We go, oh, well, oh yeah, that's the reason why we did all that stuff, is that we hope you would come to the show. <laughs> yeah, you know, when we put out People's Champ um, a couple months ago, we did a little surprise thing in Kensington Market in Toronto, and we announced the venue at 6 p.m., and by like 6.15, there was 500 people like sprinting down the street and waiting in line. And that doesn't happen just because we put out a tweet. That's you know, the result of you know, building a relationship with music fans over the last 10 years. Uh, so, yeah, we're, we're really... And we're always grateful and blown away when, when we see people respond to, uh, to things we do. Talking with Max Kerman from Arkells or The Arkells, whichever you like. Um, you guys have done all the small venue shows. You've worked your way up. Is the dream to be the stadium band that you're going to be this weekend is is this where you're shooting to be is this what you would like to be ultimately uh, sure but i mean I, we've always been like really realistic with um with success in the music business like we were shocked that we got to the point we got to six years ago <laughs> you know what i mean when we were playing to 300 people across the country and uh like that had already exceeded expectations because we know that a, a life and a career in this business is really tough and you need to work hard, but you also need to have a lot of luck on your side. Um, so I don't know. Like, I think we just take what we can get. It's like, you know, there's going to be big shows and we're incredibly grateful for those, but you know, you know, we played in, uh, you know, London, England, we sold out a club in the last month and that was an amazing accomplishment in its own right. So, um, you know, to 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 go right from like I want to be to go from a small band and say I want to be U two is just completely unrealistic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but if we can have a few U two moments, then we'll, we'll gladly take them. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from six to eight only on nine hundred CHML. You know, one of the things that I, I've never had this experience, I never will have this experience. My musical abilities are basically nil, and my writing of lyrics is basically nil. But I've always thought one of the coolest things that anyone could ever experience and something I've always wanted to know what it would feel like is to stand up in front of an audience and have that audience sing my song, sing my words back to me. What's that like when you do that? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of the most gratifying parts of the job, you know, to, to have a song that you, you know, you wrote or you started on your piano and you hacked it out with with your bandmates and tried to make sense of it in the studio and then to put it out in the world and see people respond to it and then to play it live and have people sing back to it is really amazing. I remember the first time, um, one, one moment that sticks out was like 2008 or nine. We, we, we were playing in Thunder Bay and it was our first like headline or co-headline tour. And uh, people were singing back to uh, John Lennon, our song, which wasn't even a single. And I just remember thinking, and there's maybe like 150 people there, but I just remember going like, this is blowing my mind. Like we drove 24 hours to get here. So it feels like a really like long way away from home. And there's a crowd of people who I don't know. They're not my college roommates. They're not family members. <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know them at all. And they're singing back to song. I just remember thinking this is so cool. So yeah, it, everything you, you, uh, you believe in the hype, Scott is exactly true. It's, it's really amazing feeling. <laughs> are, are moments like those, though, when you're in a small place and you're doing it, but you get that kind of feedback, are moments like those when you start to realize that this thing could actually really work, that it could actually turn into something? Yeah, I mean, 
you know, it's funny. Even bands have been doing it for 20 years. Like, there's, like, everybody wants to be in a band because it's not a real job, you know? <laughs> it's, it's just, like, everyone works really hard in music because they desperately don't want to have a real job. So because it's that kind of employment, it's like you're just thinking, it's like, this is too good to be true, so I'm going to be sent back, uh, back to school or back to a job any day. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it feels like we're pretty secure right now, but, like, we're desperately afraid of losing it. <laughs> and I've heard big, like, bands much bigger than us say the same thing, uh, you know. So we, we, don't, uh, we don't take it for granted. But do you feel like you're working really hard not to work hard? Yeah, but the work is really fun. So it doesn't feel like work, but it, it does consume me. It's like it's all I think about, and uh, but it's never been a drag. Like it's never once been like, oh, this sucks. It's like it's always been just like really fun, creative work, and I get to do it with really good friends. And over the years, like just the team that we get to work with, it from our agents to our management is like top notch. And it just feels like it kind of just feels like we're getting better at it the longer we do it. You know, the, the first time you do anything, I'd say in any job, but I can say speak for music is it's kind of nerve wracking and exhausting and you don't know how it's going to go. But once you get through that first time, then the next time it becomes easier and easier. So I can tell you this is the first time I played the stadium and I'm, I'm a little bit worked up this week. <laughs> like worked up nervous or worked up just fired up? No, not nervous. More just, uh, there's just a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of things that we'll do in, in the show that we've been doing pretty consistently over the last few years. But there's also other things we're, we're, we're looking to try and, wanted to make sure that we you know we're connecting with everybody there there's a, there's a lot of people you know up in the deep seats that we gotta you know make sure that they're feeling as well so uh yeah just a new new experiences are usually just a little bit more to take on but we're like totally like we can't wait it's well i so much fun. i gotta give you credit too because uh, one of the things you guys do so well you mentioned the cheap seats you guys and this sounds maybe a little ridiculous to describe it this way you do the cheap seats really well and what i mean is i just watched something online where a, ba- a high school band in Milton was playing your song, People's Champ, as part of their, their band or their orchestra, and you guys actually decided to, what, to show up and just uh, to sing it with them? That is very cool. Yeah, you know, um, we're really blown away when, we, when we're a part of people's lives and in something more than just a concert or listening to your headphones. And so, you know, there's been times when, but yeah, like that, that example, the high school band played the tune, and I had a music teacher there, Mr. Foster, is an awesome guy, and uh, we arranged it to come in and, and play it with them. Uh, but also, you know, things like being the first dance at somebody's wedding uh, or, you know, being a part of sports montages. Like, if we can, you know, kind of... And people... It's funny. People always think of us being really generous. It's like, oh, I can't believe you guys did that. But it's like, no, we like it too. These are just experiences of life that <laughs> we're really lucky to have. So I, it's not like we're... I mean, yeah, it's not like... The, the, the favor is mutual, I'd say. And going around now giving out People's Champ medals. You guys are now like the Hamilton, the Order of Hamilton Committee <laughs> that's running around rewarding Hamiltonians for good behavior and good work. That's, I love that. That's fantastic. Well, you know, the song People's Champ came out of a lot of anger and frustration. You know, it's sort of a, a Trump song. It's about that kind of character. Uh, if a, you know, a, a politician or a leader who's parading around as if he's Robin Hood and there's anything but that. But, you know... I, after we put up the sign, I was like, you know, let's try to keep uh, vibes positive because anything, anytime I've ever been productive in my life, it's been because I've had like an encouraging person rooting me on. It's never been when I've been angry or frustrated. So, you know, we tried to turn the song and that idea. So, okay, let's, like, we know who the people champ isn't, 
but so let, let's if you look around there's tons of examples of, of people who work tirelessly and selflessly for their community so let's go honor those people saturday night tim horton's field uh, i hope you will have a great time max i know the band will have a great time because i know the people watching are going to be having a great time thanks for doing this ah thanks yeah, great channel scott that is Max Kerman, lead singer, frontman of Arkells. You can catch him. Tickets, I believe, still available. So go on Ticketmaster, go to Ticats.ca. I don't know where you can find them, but uh, you can go see them. Go see them. You'll regret it if you don't. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. I don't know if the last story with Max Kerman and Arkells are going to, is going to intersect with our current story. She could be out there at the time this is happening because my next guest is... This is what she does. She's all over the city. You may have read about her because uh, it's a fascinating story. I, this is where I learned about it. Uh, Anita Joldersma is a Hamilton resident who has decided to explore the city. And when I say explore the city, I mean all the city. I mean every corner of the city, every street of the city, and then do it all by foot. She is walking every single street in this city. Uh, she joins me now in studio. Anita, how are you? I'm well, and yourself? I'm great, but I am somehow both perplexed and disappointed you didn't actually walk here. I didn't. I already put my five miles in this morning that I chose to do today, and I did not want to be sweaty and hot and <laughs> yucky. <laughs> Where does an idea like this come from? I, uh, my brother walks, my mother walks, my sister walks, and then ran, and I just needed to kind of get moving. And so September 2014, I put on a pair of shoes and I started walking and I went around the block and I hated it. Every step of it, I wore the wrong shoes. I had blisters. I was sweating. I was almost crying at the end of it. It was just awful. And it took a little while. I kept, decided to give it a chance. It went out every couple days and I was going past a woman's house and as she came out, there was someone leaving and she was waving goodbye and the lady stopped the car, rolled down the window and said, um, keep going, you're doing great. And it's like, oh, I am? I didn't think I was doing great. And it's like, mm, okay. So I walked past the lady in the car and the lady at the house um, said, um, you keep it up. You know, we, we need all the help we can get. And I said, you don't understand. I'm not a walker. This is very hard for me. And she said, you keep it up. And so the next morning I woke up and I was a walker. The idea that you just started walking, I was having visions of Forrest Gump. A uh, <laughs> little worried that that's going to happen. <laughs> You're not going to grow the big beard, but uh, no. who knows, you might make the happy face shirt by accident at some point. Like, you know, that happens. You never know. It is. Okay, so you do this, though. Like, lots of people walk. There's lots of people who I know who go out at the evening or whatever else, and this is part of their yep. daily r ritual or their exercise as you do whatever else, but they do it in their neighborhood and they stay in their neighborhood and they walk their loop or their lap or whatever. When did you come to the idea that you were going to expand your zone? Um, I started walking and then I thought I went up a different street and I thought I haven't been down this one before, have I? I think I have. No, I haven't. Yes, I have. So I started mapping them and I have just a little bit of OCD, um, quirky fun OCD, not psychiatrist worthy OCD, just quirky, <laughs> quirky fun. And so I decided to, you know, keep track and I would map out every street and I would, you know, fill it in on mark with, by a marker and, uh, keep track of where I've been. So on that, an actual map? The HSR transit map. 
which you have with you. Yes, this is I the do. official. This is the official Anita Joldersma official walking map. Yeah, and it's pictured in the Spectator and the in the picture um, in the in the Spec today. So. It, it's it has it's actually I have worn one out so I had to replicate by drawing in all the same things but if you when you're drawing all of them in it's pretty easy you just go past so do you have a plan did you start with a plan or did you just start walking and then when you got home you said okay we went down the street today in the street today and then all of a sudden it yeah, starts to expand yeah I it just kind of kept going further and further until I ended up like I ended up walking away from home and then I realized I have to get back <laughs> and then it's like Okay, now what do I do? So I, I would take a different route back and then try and cover as many streets. And a lot of them you have to do twice because you go up the cul-de-sac and then you have to come back. Mm. And so I'm doing a number of them more than once to get to where I need to be. And now I have to drive 15 minutes to get to a spot that I haven't walked. So what are you – we all – if we're all walking and doing this kind of walking, you, you're doing it by yourself. You have time yes. to think – uh, what do you do to pass the time? Is it just walking and looking at homes and waving at people? Or are you actually <laughs> thinking about stuff while well, you're... I occasionally listen to podcasts. That's that's sometimes what I do. Um, I'm a Christian, so I sometimes pray for the houses I go past. It sounds a little odd, but it just makes me feel good to, to do that. And so I never know who you know, might need a little prayer today. And so I, I'll go past a house, and I can't say I've prayed for every house, but... Um, it, it's just a nice feeling to be able to do that. And I try and keep my eye out for people. If I see people... Is it a social thing? Well, it, I do it alone, um, mostly because I can't walk and talk at the same time. And I, I don't have to keep anyone else's pace. If I want to slow down, I can. If I want to speed up, I can. But if I see someone in the garden working on their plants, I have n- not one green thumb ounce in my body. And so I usually stop and say, thanks for doing all the work to make your lawn look so beautiful because I I get to have the pleasure of seeing it and you're doing all the work. So thank you. And usually they're shocked. <laughs> no one says that. So it's sometimes there's a chance to talk with people. I don't go around, you know, searching for people to talk to like that, you know, the crazy lady who's <laughs> attacking us trying to get conversation going. But Do you go year round? I did. I go I, I go all summer and all winter. And in the winter, if it's really icy out, I will try and like walk at the mall. Like I, I'm not going to break my leg out there. But in general, I kept track of how many, uh, how many days that the sidewalks were covered with ice. So do you have a streak going now? Like, do you, Is it seven days a week or five days oh, a week? Oh, no, no, you? probably two or three. Like oh, okay. you, usually one of the days is like five or six miles. And then there might be another day... Um, three or four and then I have some small walks in between because now I, I walk for my errands I'll walk to the bank for a mile and I'll walk to the bulk barn and I'll walk to you know different places that I never would have considered walking to so this started your home is on Central Mountain yep so it started in the Central Mountain yep. area you go home after at some point you go and get this map and figure okay let's start mm-hmm. charting this yep how long before the map starts to look like it's actually got some markers on it because it's a I mean it's a big map and at first it probably doesn't look like it's got all that much when does it start to look like wow we're doing this it it, it yeah I can't remember I have taken pictures of the map so one day I want to figure out how to have the pictures progress from filled in filled in filled Animate in it, yeah yeah so I thought well, I'll do that one day when I figure out how to do that but but for now I'll just I'll see see where I go you're listening to the Scott Radley show weeknights from 6 to 8 only on 900 CHML a Hamilton woman who is 
quite literally walking every single street of this city. What could be better? You should be on the stage with the two guys from Proclaimers, um, or at least just walking around in circles or something while you're while they're doing that song. I should never be invited to sing anywhere. <laughs> I sing in the key of me. Well, and it, sometimes it, they do too. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it would frighten people. We have unfolded over the commercial break. We have unfolded this map, which is about four feet by two and a half or three feet. It's a big city map. And we're looking, you have marked in a purple or black or green, I think. Am I looking nope. here? Right? Purple or black. Purple and black. Pen. Sorry, the lighting is making it green. Yep. All the streets that you have so far walked on and most on the mountain appear to be filled in. They are. I mean, there's very few that have not been no, to this point th- as far as like Rymel. Is Rymel the top part here? Is that where I'm looking? Yeah, no, tw- that's 20 Road. Or 20 Road, okay. I've gone as, as, as far south as 20 Road. It's a lot of steps that you have taken to yes. fill all this in. It really is. Yes. You have, um, you have been, you were saying in the break, you have got permission to walk up Red Hill Creek. Yes. That's marked off. Yes. How did you do that uh, without w- being hit by every uh, single car? Uh, yeah, you're, there are certain roads that you certainly cannot be walking on. And I'm very mindful of that. I don't want to be in any position that I'm, you know, I'm putting myself or traffic at risk. Um, so when they closed the Red Hill for the Road to Hope, I thought, I'm out there. So I wanted to get permission. So I said, can I make a donation? And it, when they're all running down, can I walk up? And she said, sure. Whoever had given permission. How many people called to say there's someone who's confused? No, no, no one <laughs> called. And my husband dropped me off um, at Barton. And then I walked all the way home and it was eight miles that day. Wow. This, okay. So now here's the thing is that, uh, sorry, you started again when? September, 2014. So this is four, three and a half years. This has been, this project so far is about three and a half years. And I probably didn't really start mapping it until a couple weeks in, but then I finished the Hamilton Mountain of all the streets that I could find. I actually walked down streets that they were still building, (laughs) but I knew they were building a street. There's one off uh, West 5th, and I thought, oh, there's tractors there. I'm going to have to go down, but they're making a park. So it's like, oh, I guess I don't have to walk <laughs> through that one. So there are, again, in this map, there are m- the, most of the middle of the city, mountain yes. and lower city, are filled in. But there are still chunks of the city that are not yep. done, that are still untapped here. How yes. long do you expect this is going to take I to was, finish? I was trying to think. I think what I, I need to put as a... Uh, priority is that I anything with the Hamilton, Ontario address because I've been doing Stony Creek and mm. Ancaster, but one day I'll finish Hamilton. Have you planned for the big finish? There has to be the one street that you're going to finish on that you're leaving till the very end. Is there one? Uh, not yet, but I did I did that on the mountain. I, I um, finished on East 38th and when I was a very, very, very little girl, uh, that's where I lived. So that was the last street I walked on the Hamilton Mountain. Because there's got to be some kind of, you know, I mean, the it never happened, but when Terry Fox was going to finish, they or when when yes. Rick Hansen came into Vancouver after his Around the World yep. mer- uh, Man in Motion, it was a huge deal to finish rolling into BC Place. You've got to have something where this, you know, it's going to be the last one and you break the tape and I then... I do something. Uh, I think I'm going to write a book. What's it going to be called? Um, Confessions of a Streetwalker. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or something that will, like that. That will sell. I, I'm a nice church lady, so I might that, have to answer some questions about that one. That will sell, and then you'll get a million complaints. This is not at the, all what no, I bought. It, it won't be. This is, I was expecting something a little juicier than Hamilton it, Neighborhoods. It's, well, it's, it's pretty, I, I'm enjoying it past, I didn't think I would be enjoying it. I, I didn't think that it would grab me so uh, firmly. And it's just, it's a, it's a, 
a way to get to know your city. It's a way to mm-hmm. kind of connect with people. And if uh, the the miserable walking hater that I was can do it, then almost anyone. I mean, you could do it in a wheelchair, right? Just well, you've also get out and explore. You also have six children, so this is also a great opportunity to get out <laughs> to of the get house. Out no, of the house. no, we've said we said goodbye to the last one. Uh, we're empty nesters now. Praise the Lord. But um, <laughs> it was happy because uh, we have. Uh, I had 35 years worth of kids in the house, so that was nice. And so I'm I'm pretty free. Mm. Uh, I I do the books for my husband's business, and I I'm able to have the time to do it whenever I want. I usually go early in the morning, but what do you do? What will you do when you finally put all the marker on this, and there's nothing left to I do when all the mountains have been climbed? No idea. I, I will feel like Forrest Gump halfway through his his walk, and he just will turn around and walk home. So I I don't, don't know. You live in the upper mount, mid mid mountain, central yep. mountain. So that obviously is a place that you enjoy, that you like. But sure. when you've done all this, where's the part of the city that you like the best? Whether it's architecture, whether it's homes, whether it's whatever. Where's the part that you go? That was that's really the best part of this city. Well, the one that surprised me, I think, is I was a little leery about walking in some of the you know scarier neighborhoods down you know Barton Street or Emerald or whatever. They have a bit of a reputation. They're in the news sometimes. But I was there at eight o'clock in the morning and I only met nice people walking their kids to school. I I met wonderful people. So it's like that that really opened my eyes that the, the neighborhoods are who the people are. Mm. And if you get a chance to, to meet some of them, I find when you're walking on a main street, you don't really talk to people. You don't look at them. You don't acknowledge them. But once you're in a neighborhood, they think you belong. So they say hi and they expect you to say hi back. So it's kind of nice. It's like you have no idea who I am, but I... You get to nod to each other and sometimes say something. It's so. a great project. It is uh, It is one that y- you are a writer. It's one that will, whether you call it that title or something <laughs> else, uh, it, there's, all, it, there's all kinds of potential here. Right. Uh, there, it's a great Hamilton Story. experiment. Yeah. And I don't know that anyone else has, I don't know that mayoral candidates knocking on doors have ever done anything close to this. Well, my husband um, said, would you please get a job at the post office? <laughs> <laughs> at least but, pay some bills when yeah, you're doing this. Yeah, at least be a pack mule or something, carry some parcels, work for FedEx, whatever it takes. Yes. Anita Jolders, it is, it is great. It is, uh, people can read about it. It's at thespec.com. You can see a photo. You can see the map uh, online there. Uh, really appreciate you coming in. Thanks for doing this. Very welcome. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Regular listeners will recall that we used to have someone not that long ago, named Ben, who was on the other side of the glass. Ben, uh, he was great at his job. He was able to get another job that gives him other opportunities. We were sorry to lose him, but we got Will now, and we got Lisa other day. So something we used to call Ben's story of the day has now changed to Will's story of the day. So, Will, the mantle is yours. To, the, to, to you from failing hands, we pass the torch. All that kind of stuff. So you can't drop the ball on me here, all right? You're, you're, this is your test drive today. Okay, I, I accept this solemn duty. Thank you very much. We will have the ceremony later. So what all we right. do with Will's story of the day is I bring you three of the most ridiculous stories from around the world, and you pick which one is your story of the day. Which one is your favorite? All right. All right? I'm ready Story number one comes to us from New York State. Guy goes to a restaurant, Bohemian Hall and Beer Garden, because he wanted burgers and beer. And he has a lovely time there. It's an, and it's apparently a restaurant that has an A rating on the whatever service it is. So right. he's thinking, okay, this was great. I had a nice burger. I had a nice glass of beer. He gets his bill. And here's what the bill says. One 
cheeseburger, cheddar, well done, toast bread, please spit in it too. What? That's what he said. <laughs> and he called the waitress over and basically said, uh, what is now he feels like he's going to barf because he's got some cook is horking a loogie into his burger that he just consumed. (laughs) Anyway, the waitress was promptly fired. He got a refund. I'm still not sure that quite covers it because if I think that some sweaty, overweight, hairy chef in the back just snorted one and let it ride onto my meat patty, that's disgusting. I don't care. Anyway, some people are suggesting that maybe it was a misunderstanding that rather than please spit in it too, it was supposed to say please split in two. But he says, I never asked them to cut the burger in half. So don't give me that one. Maybe they mixed the order up and someone else requested to requested have a, the a, bo- an anti, uh, yeah, the uh, loogie burger. Yeah, it's, it's the new lesser popular one, the loogie burger. <laughs> Uh, That'll be on their menu soon. So there's story number one. The guy who got a burger that may or may not, but certainly threw him off, may have been horked into. Uh, Story number two from Big Coppet Key, Florida. Now, I don't know where Big Coppet Key is. I'm guessing down in the Key West area, the Florida Keys. Fair. A 48-year-old Florida guy was pulled over on suspicion of drunk driving. Uh, Daryl Royal Rydell. What a great Southern American name, Daryl Royal Rydell. I think they just get him to try to pronounce his name to find out if he's sober or not. Uh, yeah, well, he's he has, according to this uh, Associated Press story, he has three previous DUI convictions between 2003 and 2010, and a fourth one pending from last year. Anyway, he's in his pickup truck. They pulled him over. As the police officer was, I guess, waiting to go back to the car to get the breathal- roadside breathalyzer or whatever, uh, old Daryl... Daryl Royal, Daryl Royal stepped out of the pickup truck with a beer can in his hand and promptly chugged the beer. (laughs) Because why wouldn't you do that if you're being pulled over for a drunk driving suspicion? In for a penny, in for a pound. You may as well. Hey, if I'm going to go down, I'm going down swinging. So, so that is, uh, so he was, um, he's in jail without bond. Shockingly. He's not able. Yeah. I wonder why he now faces numerous charges. Uh, he also failed to submit a breath test, which oh. I guess at that point... Uh, yeah, see, you don't need to. I, uh, you probably don't need to. If the cop on his yeah. chest camera, car dashboard camera, sees you get out of your pickup truck while he's pulled you over, uh, you're probably not even needing to go down the road of what's your breath level. I feel like they should even drop that charge because it really does not matter. Yeah. You know, we've talked about people, criminals on this show many, many times before. I think that we are missing the boat. The the, the court system, the justice system is missing the boat by not just having a charge of monumental stupidity. And you can have it as first degree, second degree, or third degree. <laughs> it covers all these things. You don't even have to go into the deep detail. You're, okay, you're charged with first degree monumental stupidity <laughs> of a criminal nature. All right? So it's, it's, and wouldn't it be also easier for all the media to track? All you have to do is now go to the list that has monumental stupidity charges, and we'd love it, and it would humiliate all these people. Anyway, finally, that's story number two. Okay. So we've got the guy who bought a burger that he was led to believe by the bill someone had spat on. Mm-hmm. We've got the guy who gets pulled over for drunk driving, and while the cop is watching, chugs a full can of beer. Story number three comes from Tokyo, where a Japanese member of parliament who is a pro-smoking lobbyist. Okay apologized this week for jeering a lung cancer patient who was testifying about the dangers of secondhand smoke. While this 
poor person who's suffering from lung cancer is making a presentation in the Japanese parliament. This guy shouts, enough already, and a bunch of other things at the guy because he didn't didn't agree with him. I just murmured my feelings that smokers should not be discriminated against more than necessary, he said. And on and on and on. Anyway, he's had to now apologize because I guess he needed reminding that making negative and mean-spirited comments to people suffering from cancer is not cool. Not cool at all. My radio cannot convey the face I am making no, right it now. No, cannot. So you've got three choices. <laughs> oh, do you like the, the loogie burger? Do you like the drunk driver quaffing a beer? Or do you like the <laughs> completely insensitive Japanese parliamentarian making fun of lung cancer patients? You know what? I think this is a, this is a tough one. I think I have to go with Loogie Burger because there is so much mystery still there. There is so much to still understand. And yet there's so much less that I want to know about it. (laughs) Exactly. I really do not need to have a scientific... I don't want him to expel his stomach content so they can test and see if another person's (laughs) DNA is in there or something. No, thank you. CSI Burger Shop. (laughs) You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. It's not just the first day of summer today, this week. It's also another, well, it's an anniversary this week, an interesting anniversary, I thought. Today, this week, not today, pardon me, this week, earlier this week was the 25th anniversary of the opening of the Hockey Hall of Fame on Front Street in Toronto, you know, in that beautiful old bank building. Well, Kevin Shea is a hockey historian. He is an editor of publications and online features for the Hockey Hall of Fame, and he is the author of a new book on the Hall of Fame called The Hall, Celebrating Hockey's Heritage, Heroes, and Home. He is one of the guys we love having on this show, and he joins us now. Kevin, how are you tonight? I'm doing well, and I love being on this show, Well, too. we're glad for that. We always love having you here. And I must say, though, when, I, when, I, when I'm thinking about the Hockey Hall of Fame, and I, as I say, the, the building it's in now is lovely, it's beautiful, it's old, it's all those kind of things. But I still, when I think of the Hockey Hall of Fame, really, I must admit, I think back to my childhood when I would go down to Exhibition Place and line up outside that crappy white building that was almost nothing in it, uh, the Spartan Hall. And then I would finish with the Hockey Hall of Fame, go across the hallway to the Canadian Sports Hall of Fame and be done the whole thing in half an hour on my way home. Yeah, well, and that was the beginning for most of us, including me as well. I mean, that was... I always had a love of hockey, but uh, would, I was a Windsor boy, would beg my folks, you know, when we were visiting my aunt in Toronto, can we please go to the Hockey Hall of Fame, please? And we would go and, uh, and dutifully go and see the Stanley Cup and walk through. So that was my first experience, too, and I think you always remember your first. Is well, they say? Yeah, it is. <laughs> and there wasn't a whole, I mean, maybe I'm just forgetting. There wasn't a whole lot there. It was, a, as I say, I used the word Spartan. It was a pretty Spartan Hall of Fame back then. Well, and there was a bit of a reason for that, too, is, is nobody really thought about saving all of the, the heritage items that were out there. They just kind of were around. But there was a, one gentleman who's, I would say, almost solely responsible for that. It's a guy named Lefty Reed. He lives up in Peterborough these days. But Lefty Reed was brought in to, to help out once the, uh, the Hockey Hall of Fame opened on that site. And he was a, a reporter here in Toronto writer for one of the newspapers as well, and he started off as a a part-time guy, but eventually moved into the curatorial role, and he had the insight to to start saving things from World Hockey Association jerseys that nobody really cared about at that time, but now they're 
they're, uh, I wouldn't say legendary, but in some in some cases they are, but really important part of hockey as well. But sticks, you know, the 250th stick, and he would do it by, or 250th goal stick, I should have right. said, and he would do it by writing to the various teams. You know, he didn't have the access to be able to, to just pick up and go and show up at different events, so he would write and ask out of the good graces of their heart if they could possibly ship him such and such a stick or such and such a sweater and he was the one who started to collect it so it was a very slow process that certainly has accelerated through the years was it was he successful at doing that oh very much so very much so nobody would ever asked before so so a lot of these items that were just kind of floating around or the or the players had them or or this if it was a sweater for example it might be reused again the next year or given to a junior affiliate team to to wear with just changing the logo on the front and there were no names at that particular time they just were kind of out there and all of a sudden they started to be collected and there was you know, whatever they had was put on display. Originally, ultimately, there was enough that they could put premium items up and keep others aside and then rotate them into the uh, into the exhibits as well. So it took quite a while, but, but I'll tell you, Lefty Reed is the gentleman who should be uh, heralded for these sorts of activities. Once they were actually able to open a hall, and what was it, did you say 1961 was the first right. year? Yep. So once they were actually able to get a tangible, real place where you could go and see, does that... From your research, does that accelerate the process then of people then saying, okay, this is something we can actually give to? Does that, when it's real then, do the teams oh, start sure. thinking about this? Nobody would ever asked before. Before it was a virtual museum, if that makes any... It's a term that we would use today. certainly wasn't back then, but it was just... It was just your, you, each year, not even every year, uh, names would be bandied about and they would be voted on by a selection committee at the time. It was actually the Board of Governors before there was a selection committee. And uh, so they would announce it in the newspaper. It was certainly not a big deal, but all of a sudden you'd read about whoever. Uh, and did the players Baker come? And Howie Morenz and whoever. And so it, it was starting to get some momentum going. They were going to try and put it in Kingston. That was the original thought. Hmm having a museum in Kingston, Ontario, because that was believed at the time to be the birthplace of hockey, since been debunked. But uh, they couldn't come up with the money. Finally, uh, guys like Con Smythe, Frank Selkie. So Con Smythe was the owner of the Leafs. Frank Selkie was the general manager of the Montreal Canadiens, along with several other people. Uh, Bill Wirtz down in Chicago was, was heavily involved as well. And they uh, were able to to move the idea, okay, so Kingston isn't going to be the place. Let's move it to Toronto because there's a lot of activity there. And uh, and they were able to come up with the money through the NHL teams and elsewhere to put a Hockey Hall of Fame, a bricks-and-mortar Hockey Hall of Fame at that time. The problem was it was only open when the CNE was open. So oh, was, okay. <laughs> it was three weeks a year. That was the dilemma, and they couldn't charge admission. It was uh, you got to go into it at the time when they first opened with admission to the CNE. So, you know, it was it was all being financed by the NHL teams at the time. Much has changed through the years, obviously. Did the players back then? Because now, if you're inducted, uh, it's a big deal. They have the whole weekend and everything else, and all the players, no matter where they live, if they're in Sweden or Russia, where they all come back. Did that used to happen? Did players used to go to the Hall of Fame for an induction? Well, they did, but there wasn't an induction gala as we have today with the full, you know, meal and then, you know, in the actual ceremony and televised or anything like that. It was it was a luncheon in the earlier days. It was a luncheon. The guys, yes, yeah, some of them would come back, not all of them. Um, some people would show up for their inductions and some wouldn't. You know, guys like Doug Harvey decided he was going to go fishing instead that particular day that he was inducted. <laughs> and, you know, Ted Lindsay actually boycotted his because at that time it was a male-only 
ceremony. And so the women were told to just go, you know, go to the food court or go shopping around and see. We'll see in a couple of hours. And he thought, no way. If my wife can't come and my family can't come and be part of my induction, I'm not going. I'm picturing all the guys in the sauna just wearing a towel. (laughs) Well, it wasn't quite like that, but but certainly so much changed. It was a different era entirely at the time. Um, But another thing, you, you, you point out something else that's kind of interesting so there was the Baseball Hall of Fame down in Cooperstown, and, you know, it was quite an elaborate place at that time. Certainly still is, too, even though it's a little bit off the beaten track. But some people just felt that the Hockey Hall of Fame really wasn't as prestigious as it should be. It, it wasn't as prestigious as, the, you know, the Baseball Hall of Fame, for example. So as much as they went and they, they liked it, they, you know, they weren't embracing it. And it was maybe after their own induction, they wouldn't necessarily come back for other people's inductions. And it took a little while to convince them that this is actually something very special. And as it was built up through Lefty Reed's work and others as well later on, that they, uh, they started to realize, wait a minute, this is something very special. There's a logo now. You actually got a, a, a jacket. You actually got whatever it happened to be. And it, was, it became the the sort of elite uh, evening or afternoon at that time that uh, that it's later on become and is certainly involved now into evolved rather into a a three-day weekend and a and a wonderful ceremony where it's a real real prestigious event oh, for yeah. anybody to attend let alone just the inductees and rings and everything oh, yeah oh, the whole it's yeah. the whole um the Stanley Cup now I mean the Stanley Cup is certainly the I would argue the key piece of memorabilia that's there and so the Hall of Fame kind of in a weird way is built around the Stanley Cup and it has a wonderful long colorful tradition of being abandoned and being dropped and being dented and being spat in and having babies baptized and being taken to strip clubs and all the rest of the stuff does the Hall of Fame have the similar kind of colorful story that the elements in it do well I mean there's all kinds of stories I mean the 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 anecdotes that go along with just any institution are are fabulous. So, I mean, one that's that's quite heralded through the years has been the story of Dorothy the Ghost, who inhabits the <laughs> Hockey Hall of Fame. <laughs> who is it, she the ghost of? Well, in fact, there was a... So, the, the Hockey Hall of Fame now resides in a former Bank of Montreal building, and it goes back to the late 1800s. And so, you know, for years and years, it was the head office of the Bank of Montreal, and then later on, when the Bank of Montreal moved... To, uh, to larger quarters, it became a, a branch. But in the early 1950s, it was the place to bank. I mean, it was the perfect location. It was, it was head office and the whole bit. So there was a, a lady named Dorothy Elliott who was a, a teller at the, at the bank. And I'm, you know, I'm having to put together a number of stories here. But Dorothy apparently, apparently was having an affair with the, uh, the bank manager who actually had an apartment in the Hockey Hall of Fame. So she... Uh, so one day she came in, she came in quite early, and everybody thought, wait a minute, why is she coming in so early? And she looks a little disheveled, and anyway, she went behind the, uh, the teller's booth and then, uh, and then left for a few minutes, and, and uh, nobody, uh, nobody saw her again for a little bit. And what she had done is, is gone up to the bank manager's office and uh, with the pistol that they kept underneath the, underneath the teller's desk in case robbers came by and they had to take matters into their own hands, and then Dorothy, uh, Dorothy went and, I guess, had an argument with the, the bank manager, went into the washroom and, and hung herself. And, oh. and, uh, and so, so, you know, people now, st- so that was an actual, an actual occasion, an actual incident, rather. 
Well, people have said that they see different things, apparitions within the Hockey Hall of Fame. Now, now some people, I mean, you have to remember, too, that the subway runs underneath the uh, the Hockey Hall of Fame at Young in front. So, but some people have said that they have seen things move in the display cases. Well, maybe it's explainable, but, but it's fun to read into the, uh, the legend as well. Others felt that they felt... Uh, cold chills at certain times of the day that were just unusual. Others thought that they see somebody at the top of the stairs where the bank manager manager's office would have been, which are now boardrooms. So the legend of Dorothy continues. Dorothy the ghost, the legendary ghost of the Hockey Hall of Fame. I will watch for her next time I'm there. I actually want to see Dorothy now. <laughs> what, what, I don't remember now. What was the state of that building, that Bank of Montreal building, when the... Well, I don't even know who bought it. Who, I mean, who, who was the one who actually put down the money to buy the Hockey Hall of Fame, to buy that building? Who's the, who's the money behind this? And what, what shape was that building in when they bought it? Well, so the building was in great shape. I mean, the, the Bank of Montreal had moved out of it eight or nine years earlier than the Hockey Hall of Fame moved in. Um, so it was, it was a, an empty space at that time. The city had, and it was kind of a complicated deal, and I won't get into the whole thing necessarily, but where the Bank of Montreal wanted to extend their footprint in downtown Toronto in exchange, in, in, an, in an exchange with the city, pardon me, the city of Toronto, they would surrender the bank building um, for the opportunity to increase their footprint in other areas. The bank building would be used only for a non-for-profit organization or an arts community, a not-for-profit arts community or whatever it happened to be. And so it was in, in fine shape. I mean, it was certainly old and it needed a good paint job and there was dust on the floor and these sorts of things. It had been empty for a number of years. There had been a number of people who had tried to uh, to lease it, but either they didn't uh, fit the the uh, description that was was uh, included, or they just found that wasn't the right location for them. But when the Hockey Hall of Fame came looking because they they needed to uh, to grow beyond what they had at the CNE, they they knocked on the doors and talked to the folks with the City of Toronto. They fit the description perfectly. It was a perfect location for the the Hockey Hall of Fame, just a, a you know a couple blocks away from the CN Tower in a prime location of the city. And ultimately, wouldn't you know that the Air Canada Centre would be a block away too? But that hadn't come to pass yet. It was just the perfect location for the Hockey Hall of Fame. Do players? ever come there other than on induction weekend? Do, do, do you ever see guys in the off-season or whenever else just walking through and you go, wait, that's so-and-so? Oh, absolutely, quite often. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say Wayne Gretzky shows up regularly, but he certainly <laughs> comes every couple of years or so, just usually with his, his sons or a son and comes through and looks through. There's a classic story. In fact, I, I, uh, I included it in the book as well, but uh, Wayne Gretzky... Uh, his son wanted to go, so he thought, okay, I'll go too. And he pulled a cap down kind of over his eyes a little bit, pulled his, uh, the, the uh, lapels of his jacket up, and he stood in line, stood in line. And, uh, and somebody from the Hockey <laughs> Hall of Fame noticed him and said, Wayne, come on in. He said, no, 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 I'm a paying customer like anybody else. So he went in, and his son, uh, Gordy, Gordy, sorry, Wayne and his son looked all around, and then his son wanted to play the games. He was a young boy at the time, and... and uh, and so they went to the games, and there's one where you uh, you take shots on a virtual goaltender and see how how uh, strong your your goal scoring skills are. So the son, I think, got uh, three goals out of four, three goals out of the four shots, and it was time for dad to try. And no, 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 that's fine. Come on, dad, give it a try. 
Well, Gretzky uh, was <laughs> shut out by the virtual goaltender. But but the guy from the Hockey Hall of Fame, the, the gentleman who was working there, didn't realize who it was. And so he said, look, sir, maybe if you put your hand down a little further down on the stick, I think you'd have better. And Gretzky just put his cap up and... And laughed and pointed over the display with his his 800 plus goals and the net that he scored them into and whatever and said, uh, yeah, maybe you can get me one of the sticks from over there and that might help me a little bit more. <laughs> and then the kid realized, oh my God, it's Wayne effing Gretzky. <laughs> that would uh, that would probably be absolutely hilarious. Although probably also traumatizing for the poor kid now who um, who oh, did he, that. Oh, he was mortified, and so was Gretzky to uh, to have been shut out when his son outscored him. But anyway, there's good stories. That, that is way. a but, great. That's a great but, story. But quite often, you'll see uh, see guys even during the the season. You know, if they if they get into town the day before, I'm talking about a visiting team the day before coming in, see them come by and and uh, going through the exhibits. Uh, during the summertime as well with families, it's it's not unusual by any means. It's actually quite refreshing to see because, hey, we're all fans, whether you play the game or whether it's like you and me. We've just got a couple of minutes left here, Kevin. Sure. Have you been to other sports Hall of Fames? Have you, have you visited any of the other ones? I've never been to Cooperstown. That's one of those bucket list ones. But I've been to the Canadian Football Hall of Fame, the, the U.S. Football Hall of Fame. In Canton, yep. Oh boy, I'm trying to think where else I've been. I guess maybe that's it. You know, and this and two regional uh, sports hall of fame, sports halls of fames as well. The Clarington Sports Hall of Fame, the Windsor Essex County Sports Hall of Fame. <laughs> the, you know, the Etobicoke, those ones for sure. Entirely different animal for sure. But I've been to a, a number of them, but not the uh, not the one that I really want to go. Just to, to run some parallels. Well, the reason I ask is, I mean, I've been to Cooperstown a couple times, and I it's probably for a lot of people sacrilegious to say this, and I'm not saying this because you're on the line. And I, I got to tell you, the Hockey Hall of Fame to me is the best of the halls of fame. Oh. Cooperstown is wonderful. The Cooperstown's location is idyllic, and it's off in the you know in this very green, lush area, and it's beautiful and everything else. But as for the hall itself, I got to tell you, the Hockey Hall of Fame to me is the best of the bunch. I have not been to Springfield, Massachusetts, where the Basketball Hall of Fame is, right. but all the others I've been to, this is I think this is by far the best one. Well, it's wonderful to hear, and I know that to the entire staff at the Hockey Hall of Fame works really, really hard to make it uh, top, top level and, and uh, you know, the, the best in, in the game, as it were. Um, Jeff Denemy is the president and CEO, and he's real, really a visionary. He's a hockey guy like all of us, too, you know, played his minor hockey in King Carden and whatever, but he's got real vision for it. And really, the fact that he always is reinventing the place, and, and with the entire staff, but Jeff as the leader, reinventing it just to make sure that it stays fresh, stays exciting, that the the uh, the games and the electronics that are involved are are not dated. You know, they, it changes pretty quickly out there with everybody mm. in the gaming world, and it's really important to keep them there too. And it costs a great deal of money to do that. So it's the sponsorships and and renting out the Hockey Hall of Fame for weddings and special occasions it's, it's these kinds of things that help you know, certainly the the money that you get from admissions helps but it doesn't pay the entire cost of keeping it updated that way so that's why there's all kinds of events that go on as well and the induction is a great uh, a great fundraiser for the hockey hall of fame as the well. biggest shame to me and it's unfortunate there's no way you could do this is i was fortunate you've i'm sure been in this place a billion times but i was fortunate once i got a tour with phil pritchard who was the curator oh. there the guy with the white gloves who brings Absolutely. the stanley cup out burlington guy. Uh, he took me through the warehouse, the storage warehouse, which is not on site at the MasterCard Center. 
it's some it's a shame people can't go there because if you like hockey, that is one giant goosebump as you walk through there and see all that stuff. It is amazing what they actually have that they can't even put on display. Oh, it, it, you're absolutely right. That's where I do most of my work right now. I just came from there today, as a matter of fact, and you know that's. That's where I do my research for the Hockey Hall of Fame and things of that sort, and it's, it's extraordinary. First of all, it's huge. It is. And, it, and it's able to hold all of the things that they can't put in the museum, that there isn't room. So my guess, and this is surely a guess, but is that maybe 10% of the items that are in the Hockey Hall of Fame are on display at the museum, which makes it exciting because others can be rotated in to keep it fresh for your next visit, or they can go on the outreach to go to Nunavut or mm-hmm. Kenosha, Wisconsin, or wherever, so that if you can't get to the Hall of Fame, sometimes the outreach program is able to bring artifacts and displays to your location as well. So it's just a phenomenal place to, to see and how well organized it is, and just to see the width and breadth of the entire compilation of, or collection rather, of, of items that are there, whether they be written pieces or actual artifacts like equipment pieces and things of that sort. It's yeah, there's no, there's no way to take the public through there. It'd be impossible. But I'll say, when I went on tour, my, my hero when I was a kid, my childhood hockey hero was Bernie Perrant. Ah, yeah. And <laughs> when I was able to walk through there and Phil was walking down, they have this row, it's a, it's a, what do you call it, a shelf, two or three levels of just sticks, just yep. thousands of sticks from moments. And he pulls out a Bernie Perrant stick and I was like, this, this may be the coolest thing I've ever done. And it's, it's like, it's a stupid little thing. It's a stick. Who cares if it's, how do you know it's Bernie Perrant? Well, it said Ber- Perrant on it. And uh, it just, it's too bad that the public can't see that part, but still, nonetheless, uh, that stuff goes on rotation. So it does show up in the hall of fame eventually. One more story very quickly, if you don't mind. Yeah. Last fall, the, uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins donated a Stanley Cup ring to the Hockey Hall of Fame, as teams do over the last decade or so. So the entire team, Sidney Crosby organized it all, which was really neat. That was at the museum, but he organized the entire team to come through the Resource Center. So, so we were there doing our regular jobs and came through, and there are all the Penguins, there's Phil Kessel, and there, you know, whatever, all the guys are there. And to see their jaws drop, and then to see uh, Phil Pritchard took one of the, he had Maurice Richard's, I don't know if it was his 544th goal stick, but I think it was, it was one of the legendary sticks anyway, and said, here, Sid. And to Sid's eyes just about pop out of his head. So here, for me, as an observer, is one of the best, if not the best in the game right now, holding the stick of a couple of generations back for, from him of the greatest player of the game at that time. And to see him in absolute awe, just holding it with such, such gen, uh, gentle hold and, and uh, with such care and love, it was just wonderful to see. And all these guys were very much the same, just to, uh, getting a kick out of going to the file to see their particular file and then, then the clippings and photos that are in there. It was wonderful to see. So, yeah, it's a special, special place, both the MasterCard Center Resource Center, and of course the museum as well. Hockey Hall of Fame opened 25 years ago this week. The new one, the well, is it, I don't know if it's still new, but the current one opened 25 years ago this week. Kevin Shea, uh, you've been listening to him. He's the author of a new book. You can soon get a copy of it called The Hall, Celebrating Hockey's Heritage Heroes and Home. Kevin, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for doing this tonight. And you do such great homework. What a great interviewer you are. Thanks a million. Enjoy the day. That, thank you, Kevin. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.